I'm Joe Forish, and this is You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. We talk about data, analytics, and its impact on business and society. We are the podcast for the Analytics Impact Network. Please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org. On today's episode, we're going to find out how can data help you better manage your investment portfolio? Find out about how you can learn to code using no-code applications. Finally, did you know that too much data could be bad for you? My guest today is Steve Marshall. Steve is the head of Data Studio at BNY Mellon Data and Analytics Solutions. In this role, Steve leads the development of an innovative software solution that empowers business users to extract actionable insights from their data in an intuitive, no-code environment. Prior to his role, Steve was head of mobile innovation at State Street, where he led a team in creating the firm's first mobile solution using machine learning on unstructured data. Prior to that, he ran a strategic venturing arm of State Street Global Advisors, which focused on building partnerships with early-stage innovative asset management firms. Steve received his MBA from the F.W. Olin Graduate School of Business at Babson College, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Communications from Boston University. Steve also holds the Chartered Financial Analyst designation and is a member of the CFA Institute. Steve, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. There's a lot of stuff that I want to cover, but first of all, I want to know, what do you do as a product manager? Uh, hey, Joe. So thanks again for, for having me. So my role uh, at BNY Mellon is I'm responsible for a new capability, a new cloud-based product called the Data Studio, which is, again, a cloud-based environment for the exploration and analysis of data by business users for the purpose of extracting insights that can help them make better decisions. So, so think of... Uh, Think of a playground for business users in a, in a zero-code environment to try to uh, extract insight from their data. Got it. Now, zero-code is a word that's been thrown around a lot recently, and I'm somewhat familiar. Can you tell our listeners briefly what that entails? Don't let the name fool you. It just means you don't have to code. You don't, know <laughs> Python, you don't have to know Python. You, uh, you don't have to know R. You don't actually need to know uh, data science or coding in any way. It's just really think of like a drag-and-drop kind of an interface where you can achieve your your pursuits without actually needing to write any software code. Got it. So it's more or less a GUI for coding. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, I would say it's a GUI for uh, for, for business outcomes, um, and the coding all kind of happens in the background. That's pretty wild. I like that. That's a really good idea. As, as someone struggled through learning R and Python and other languages, I think this approach would be preferable. Well, so I didn't learn those things. And so I was quite interested in building a product for people like myself who understand and appreciate the value of, of data science based decisions. But, but, you know, I don't have, I don't have the knowledge uh, that's required to create it for myself with code. Understandable. And in terms of this, you know, no code development, no code products, what sectors or clients are you offering these to? Well, our clients within BNY Mellon are, are uh, what we call large and medium-sized asset owners. So think about <clears throat> those as you know, pension plans or, or endowments, essentially large pools of assets that typically hire, hire external managers to manage their money for them. Mm-hmm. And then we also target 
as our client base um, asset manager. So large, the largest asset managers in the world, as you can imagine. And so there's a tremendous amount of data, as you might expect, as, uh, yeah. that comes off of uh, their, their activities and the activities that we do for them. And so within BNY Mellon Data and Analytics, our goal is to help them manage their data so that put it all in one place, but also be able to manage that data and extract insights from that data so that ultimately, you know, they're able to make better decisions. So that's really who we're focusing on. We're focusing on the uh, me specifically and my product business users. So, so not the IT department, not the data operations department, but specifically the business users. So that the last mile of, of that sort of data journey and trying to put as many of the capabilities in their hands as, as possible, as opposed to the, the current environment where there's a, there's a lot of friction sort of between the, where the data is being generated and where the, where the decisions are being made. And we kind of want to narrow, you know, that, that, uh, that chasm. Right. It sounds like there's a lot of issues with, with that chasm, whether it projects or products or different areas of the firm are quote unquote siloed, or you've also touched upon the last mile and the last mile is usually mm -hmm. the decision maker at the company. So I would imagine that there's probably a little bit of both that you run into when you're serving different clients. Absolutely. The maturity of the kind of data operating model is, is, is still relatively young in financial services. We've got a long way to go. And if you speak to people you know, who, are, who work with data, probably 90% of them are going to tell you that, that, that they're spending most of their time on basic kind of plumbing questions, right? It, it's where is the data? How can I get it? How can I bring it into one place? How do I make sure it's clean? How do I make sure it's correct? All of those things are what you need to do before you actually answer the really important question, which is, what am I going to do with the data once I have it, right? How am I actually going to make that data, you know, turn that data into an insight that helps me do my job better? So we're still at the early days of just trying to get, you know, we kind of think of it as, as, as pipes and, and water. We're just trying to get clean water into the house. Uh, we haven't even started thinking about all the stuff we're going to do with the water once it's here. But that's how a lot of companies think about it. That's a really good way to think about it with the, the pipes and the plumbing. I never thought about it that way, but having done a good share of analysis with all sorts of data, that totally makes sense. Now, it, we chatted before a little bit about what we're going to chat about, and I know that you have a lot of different other metaphors, analogies for describing what you're working on. And there was one that you told me, it was about going to the barbershop and there's hair. Oh, right. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, to know if you could walk through that sure for us a little bit it's uh it's kind of a, a random uh, a random analogy but it, it's i think it's, it probably struck me once when i was getting my hair cut uh, <laughs> so for the longest time i mean bny mellon has been around for over 200 years right so for the longest time we've been providing really valuable services to our clients for most of that time there was data that was being created but there was really no way to harness that data and to turn it into something valuable it was just sort of a byproduct of the main service that we were providing, whether that was uh, net asset value pricing or fund accounting or, or, or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And this is for over the course of 200 right. years. So, but, but, but I mean, just to be simple, we can think about this over the last, you know, 30 years, right? So, okay. Okay. so we, we don't have to bring Alexander Hamilton into it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's a little bit like if you've been to a barbershop and you, after you get your hair cut, um, depending on how much hair you have, you know, you look down and you realize there's a lot of hair on the floor and they just right. kind of sweep it up. It's just a natural byproduct. It has no real value um, by itself. Uh, so they just kind of sweep it up and do whatever they do with it. And so that's the way it was uh, in financial services for a long, long time. 
And then we suddenly, you know, realized, I don't know how sudden it was actually, but we did realize that there was tremendous amounts of data that were, that were, it was coming off of that large financial services engine, almost like exhaust. And it could be that the real source of value was actually in that data. It just so happens that the, the activities that are producing that data are, are what's required in order to generate it. But it's not just that we can provide value to you by providing custody services or asset servicing. We can actually turn your data, spin it into gold and help you understand more about your business and about your opportunities and about your risks than you ever thought possible. And that's just because we suddenly realized that the hair on the barbershop floor is actually the, the, the real value. It's not so much in the haircut itself. Right. So something that used to be a byproduct or something that you would just throw away is now something that's very valuable. That's right. Indeed, it's an asset class kind of in its own right at this point. I like that. I like that a lot. And you said earlier that we're very early in the stages of you know, harnessing, developing, using data. So if we could maybe use a baseball mm -hmm. <laughs> reference, uh, what inning are we in right now when it comes to referencing the timeline of this great discovery of data within financial services? Oh, you know, I'm tempted to say that, you know, we're still finding our seats. Oh, has more to do with my belief on how, how far we have to go and how amazing it's going to be than it, that is a statement about how much progress we've made. We're in the ballpark, right? We know what we're trying to do, but there is, especially in financial services, it is one of the most information or data heavy sectors in the, in the global economy. Of course. There's just a tremendous amount of data. So the first step was realizing, you know, there's something, there's something here that we really, we, we really need to make sure that we're, we're focusing on this. And all the big players, you know, are, are doing that. But I, I think it's really early. We might be in the first inning, Joe, but we're certainly nowhere near, you know, the seventh inning stretch, that's for sure. I think in a lot of ways, we don't even know yet what's going to be possible with, with all the data. Wow. So just to go back to the, the image of, of mm -hmm. the baseball park, we've come a long way. So that would entail actually building the baseball park and the seats and putting the, the foul lines on the field, et cetera. So it's, it's been being worked on for a long time, but there's a great, great, great future, a long-term horizon, et cetera, for the future of what's going to happen. And we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that it will be something that's a lot better for everyone. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the risk of throwing too many metaphors at you, I actually have another one that can help explain kind of where I think we are. Uh, it involves the automobile. So if you were to think about the automobile, you know, way back when it was, you know, go back more than a hundred years. Yeah. When it was replacing the horse and carriage. Right. Right. Now, if you wanted to get value from that automobile, you weren't just thinking about where you were going, right? You were also thinking very actively about what the automobile was doing in that moment because, and you also had to more or less be a, an automobile expert and a mechanic because you weren't passively driving that thing. You were actively driving it. There were all those knobs and the choke and you, and chances are you were on the side of the road not too infrequently, you know, cranking, <laughs> right. that, cranking that big crank because you had to get it up and running. And and then, you know, think about now, you know, I just saw a car dr drive by my window here and that, that person, I, mean, I don't know who that person is, but I, I, I imagine they're probably not a, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that they're not a, an automobile expert. They're probably, well, they're certainly aware that there's an engine in the car, but they're <laughs> probably not uh, sure exactly how it works and they don't need to because they're focused on the outcome, right? They're, uh, let's say they're, they're going to the grocery store. All they knew was that they need their key in their hand, they press the button and they're focused on the outcome. And the, the work of getting them there is, is being, done, being done under the hood. Now, I think to bring it back to data science, particularly with respect to financial services, I think we are more at the car 100 years ago, where in order for us to really get 
a lot of value from our data. We need a lot of data scientists. We need to be data scientists ourselves. And we're actively not just focused on the outcome, but focused on how we're going to achieve that outcome. What I'm trying to do and what my team is trying to do is become part of the solution that brings us closer to the new car example, where, where our business users and our clients can really focus on the outcome. I want to predict something, or I want to classify something, or I want to run a scenario analysis around some risk factor. The genius and the, you know, the really hard work happens under the hood. Obviously, you can, you can tailor it, you can configure it to, to optimize the results, but ultimately, we want, we want business users to focus on the outcome and not so much the nuts and bolts of how it's all working. Right, right. Wow, that, that's even a better story to help everyone understand. And I really appreciate it as well because I actually spent a lot of time growing up working on cars. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about when what cars were like 100, 120 years ago when they first right. started to what they are now. So they've come a long, long way. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in terms of the you know, the product and services, you're selling it, you're using it with asset managers, big companies who make decisions to buy, sell different assets uh, day in, day out. And I was curious when these customers are using a lot of this data, are they using it? Is it something that could be developed by you in real time? Or does it take an, an evening, let's say, for all of the machines to clean the data up? understand what's going on and let the people know the next day what's happening? How, how fast is the turnaround on the, on the products and services that you're offering? Frankly, it depends on, on what the data is and, and sort of where it is and, and what the specific use case is. And, and frankly, on the needs and desires of our, of our users, right? So there may be some questions that our clients want to know the answer to that simply just don't change minute to minute. And they may change, especially for an asset owner who sets an asset allocation strategy and doesn't really touch it on a, on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, those answers are more or less going to become this, the same on Tuesday that they were on Monday. So it's not so much the the speed of the data that would matter as much in that case as it is the sort of scale of, of the, the sheer volume of data that needs to be processed. But, you know, we're in the cloud and there's a tremendous amount of compute. And yes, we can essentially, as long as the, again, the, the plumbing situation that I described at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, as long as those pipes are connected and, and you know, they know where they're going, then we can make that as close to real time or, or actual real time as, as our clients like. Right? It, all of that is imminently possible. It's just a matter of making sure that the connectors are connected and that the machines are speaking to the right machines and, and uh, ultimately the users know what it is that they're trying to get. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. So it's very, it's very customer focused. It's a great way, great way to put it. You, yep. you could offer whatever speed, whatever data, whatever analysis they want. So. I really like that. It's good for you. It's good for your customers. That's right. It's good for them entirely. Now, there's a lot of data out there. As you said, there's so much data, not only within financial services, but in all industries everywhere. And I wanted to know if you could touch upon maybe one unintended consequence of having all of this data. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I think we see that do that ourselves kind of every day, right? It, when there's just too much noise, you don't understand necessarily how to ingest all the data that's coming at you. You don't know how to prioritize the data. You don't know what, what's true and what's not true. I mean, just looking at the news or social media, you know, we're seeing that in our personal lives now. It's just, it's hard to know what's real and what's true. And, and so we have this concept of this sort of single mm-hmm. single source of truth. And so you know, one of the challenges that our clients have is that they've got data in lots of disparate places. And so it's hard to know which data, if, if it doesn't exactly match up, which what data is the right data. So that's one one challenge. But another challenge is when the pipes open and there's a tremendous deluge of data, how do you know what what matters uh, and what doesn't? And what can end up coming from that is 
essentially data fatigue, right? You just end up being so overwhelmed by the amount of data that you end up making no decision at all because you're paralyzed, right? It's, it's a form of paralysis. Uh, so that certainly can be a side effect. That's why a lot of people in the uh, data and analytics space focus on helping our clients prioritize. You know, that's a big word, right? Prioritize data. Everything our clients want to know is, yeah, of course. If you're going to deliver this to me, I, I want to know not just, you know, what the data is itself, but what, in what order should I pay attention to that data? What should I care about first? Because everybody, you know, was worried about that, that problem that you mentioned, Joe. Right. And I would imagine that every client has a different priority as to what they want to look at first. So it's very tailored. It's very specific. Absolutely. And it probably could change uh, day, week, month, uh, year. Minute to minute, yeah. right? Yeah. Especially if the data stream might be themes in the news or macro events or geopolitical situations. If you and I are portfolio managers with vastly different portfolios, the same event or same macro risk factor may occur that will impact both of us entirely differently. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So I, that's going to be that. So that would need to be prioritized much more highly to me than it would be to you based on the contents of my portfolio. Yeah. No, th there's a lot of talk around data these days. And if you can go back a couple of years and tell yourself, okay, I'm finishing college, I'm finishing an MBA program. In what area of data would you focus? That's a good question. I think one of the things that I would, that I'm really interested in that I, I think would be really interesting and fun is to focus on the internet of things and all the data that might come from that. And I think that that's going to be a huge source of data. I mean, it already is, but, it, but what, once our toasters and refrigerators are connected right, to the right. internet, the probably more so the refrigerator <laughs> than the toaster, but will be a huge source of, of data. Uh, I mean, just imagine the, the relationship between the food brands and the food vendors and the refrigerator and the grocery store. I mean, if they're all talking to each other, yeah. there's just a lot of data there. And, and if your milk in the far left corner of your fridge is going to go bad in, in the next 24 hours, you're probably going to get an alert. The store, they're going to query to figure out who has that brand of milk, you know, on sale yeah. and you're, I mean, just think about all the, all the possibility, right? So, you know, one really interesting uh, way that this, one of the first ways that it was started was, was essentially when, when GE started using the internet of things by, by putting essentially sensors on their, on their jet engines that, that would generate, you know, more than a terabyte of data with every flight. It's a lot of data. And what that allowed them to do was to understand exactly when these engines were most likely to need repair, and then they would go and, and repair them prior to the need for that. Then they were able to, to switch their whole business model from a, buying an airplane and servicing engines to buying an outcome, which is this many thousands of hours of flight time. Uh, so, so it's an outcome-based value proposition now as opposed to buying an airplane or leasing an airplane and, and, and leasing service. So that's just, that's just one somewhat complicated example of when our machines start to think, you know, not, not I don't think for themselves, this isn't, you know, Skynet exactly yet, but, but I think that that would be a really fun and interesting, if my house could know when my car was approaching so that my garage door would open and my lights would turn on. I mean, I just think all of that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think I could probably be here sooner than we all think. Yep. I think that's all growing at an exponential rate. So, yeah. Um, yep. And there was a piece I wanted to touch upon. You were talking about the, the fridge and knowing when the milk was going to expire and then having that communicate to whether it's the local grocery store or a grocery delivery service and mm -hmm. just having the grocery show up on your doorstep when you need them. 
which would eliminate the need to not only one, go to the grocery store, but also place an order online. Cause right now there are a lot of online grocery delivery services, but sure. I think taking that, that time out of everyone's day would be quite phenomenal as time becomes more and more valuable, more and more compressed. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what, what problems we can go on to solve because we're no longer trying to drive to the grocery store or for that, for that example. Right. I think yeah. it's, it's an interesting future to consider. And then coming back around to financial services, it's obviously a lot of change going on, a lot of things happening, you know, we're, we're just in the ballpark or maybe it's the first inning, but as data in this industry, as it relates to it being an asset, where do you think the financial services industry will be in 10 years? Well, I think that, I think that we're going to start to innovate faster for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have to, if we're going to survive. And secondly, there are so many really innovative and incredible smaller fintech companies out there that that have the the agility and the intelligence and the technology to do some really amazing things. They might not have the data that we have and the client base that we have, but there are real opportunities to partner with those people. And I think that when we figure out the right model, I mean, some people do it already. God knows we we partner with a lot of fintechs with BLM Mellon, but as that as that model model really starts to to solidify, I think this whole industry is going to move very quickly. And then I think it's going to be a, a similar story to one we just talked about with the with the groceries, right? It, people who spend a lot of time thinking about things and doing things now will will have an opportunity to think about and do other things because, you know, an example is one of the things that our clients have to solve for all the time is somebody asking them a question like, "What's my uh, what's my exposure to?" whatever it is. So what's my exposure to, um, to interest rates? Coronavirus? Okay. <laughs> well, but, but interest rate, that's a good one, but it's very, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's very broad, but I'm thinking about like, a, okay, something more specific. Okay. So, okay. Got it. Uh, and I don't mean my, my, my exposure to coronavirus, the disease, like, am I exposed to it? But you, you know, my, how are my investments exposed to coronavirus? That, that's a challenging thing to, to measure because, and, yeah. and then once you figure out how you want to measure that, being able to have the data that can help you understand your entire book of business and I'm talking about across your your equities, fixed income, real estate, private equity, those those less yeah. liquid, more opaque asset classes, it's very, very hard. First of all, you need to you need to get what's called a look through. You need to look down below your managers and see the underlying holdings. So imagine if you were able to, to simply either ask or or type in coronavirus or COVID-19 and be able to see, you know, all of your all, all the equities that you have in healthcare. Mm-hmm. All of the sovereign debt that you own in in some country that's that's having a particularly bad spell with with the surge, right? And all the way down to your real estate portfolio, maybe pharmacy chain is a is a major tenant of yours across multiple buildings. Having the ability at the touch of a finger to to understand your exposure to things like mm-hmm. whether it's COVID nineteen or whether it's interest rates or or even a geography. What's my exposure to California? Right. That, that's a real question that people answer. And how, how do you begin to even measure that? Would you mean securities I own that are based in California or right. companies that I own that earn revenue in California? Or it's hard to tell. Right. But all these things are knowable. Right. So as soon as the data is aggregated and tagged and cleaned and completely available for purpose, then these these kinds of questions are going to be incredibly easy for a business user to obtain. Now, what they do with that information is going to be, you know, where they're going to have to differentiate because the information advantage 
of institutional investors is going to start to disappear a little bit as as all this information becomes more ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like the example of the impact of a portfolio with COVID nineteen on all of the assets, and you touched upon a lot of things with your real estate of, of a pharmacy company, for example. But then it could also be real estate of something that's geared towards travel, for example, which would probably move the opposite way as a pharmacy real estate holding. But then there's other very opaque assets like copyrights or patents that may see a surge given whatever's happening in the world due to a pandemic. So it's it's endless. We could talk about this forever, but... Actually, I just heard something interesting about how uh, there was a somebody I know who bought into a, a company, bought shares of a company of a large essentially a, a veterinary practice, but it, it's almost like a franchise of, of veterinary because they figured with lockdown, a lot of people are, are going to get dogs and cats and, and there's going to be a huge demand for, for veterinary services. And boy, you know, this person was right. I mean, it just went crazy. I mean, I myself, you know, got a dog. I, so, I, and I know firsthand that veterinary services are extremely expensive. And so I, I again, I think that that's another interesting example of if my exposure to COVID-19 could include well, on the, on the plus side, you, you actually have a lot of shares in this yeah. pet hospital. People are getting a lot of pets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, but it's a good way to think about it. Yeah, it's a very positive outcome from what we've been through over the past year and a half. Well, I have one last question for you, Steve, and it's a question that I ask all of my guests. Do you say data or data? You know what? I'm so glad you asked that because I think about it every time I say it and I, I've never actually had this conversation with anybody. <laughs> and there are times when I've th- thought about saying data, but but then I'll end up saying data. And then, so I think I always say data. I mean, we'll have to go back and listen and figure out whether <laughs> I said data or data. But here's the real problem that I have with it is, is it singular or plural? Because the, re- oh. the really smart, sophisticated data scientists will say these data. Uh-huh. But I, I, I think of data as, you know, like one thing. Now, keep in mind, I'm definitely thinking about it incorrectly. Like, I am factually <laughs> wrong about this. But I, I still call it that data instead of these data. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm not sophisticated enough to do that, I don't think. I think I need a PhD to do that. Well, I never thought about it in a singular or plural sense. But maybe I could add that as another question <laughs> for some future guests. I'd love to know the answer. All right. Well, I'll keep posted on that. Awesome, Steve. Well, I had a really great time chatting with you today. I appreciate the time and I'll chat with you soon. Thanks very much. Pleasure to uh, be on here with you, Joe. Take care. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. The podcast is taking a summer break. So see you in September. See you when the summer's through. Ciao.